Hey, Erin, how's it going? You know, today has been a big day in the true crime world. It has. Tell me everything. Not a good one. Well, oh, this no. weekend has been a big weekend in true crime. So we'll start with the good news yeah. and then hit you with the bad news. Robert Durst was found guilty of murder Pray- on Friday night. <laughs> I like, like how we have to say. 400 years later. <laughs> he was found guilty like he didn't confess to it in a fucking documentary for right. the whole world to hear. On HBO. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. So that's good. He'll rot in prison for, and you know, until he dies. Like, um, bye. Um, and then, um, of course, the ongoing search for Gabby Petito ended in ended badly today. Um, they believe they found her body. It's not hundred percent confirmed because of the from DNA because of like decomposition and stuff. But they're pretty sure right. Her, so, like I told you that's in our group sad. chat, like. At least her family gets closure. This is a horrible way for anything to end. Did you watch but... the the press conference by chance? Mm-mm. The FBI uh, super like special agent, supervisory special agent that was giving the press conference was like uh-huh. holding back tears. Like you could tell oh, he just wanted to break awful. down and cry. And I like when he got up there and he was like that. I was like, oh, because me and my friend were texting, and I was like, oh, it's definitely her. Yeah, it's, it's definitely her. Yeah. Yeah. So. You know, and there's been Ugh. so much going on. I sent in the group text um, that there was a TikTok that went viral. A woman says that she picked Brian Laundrie's yes. boyfriend up, who was hitchhiking. And I mean, this, like, watching this unfold in real time, it's so crazy. And I feel like we're in this very unique place in history where if this woman's testimony is true, and I have no reason to not believe her, like... Yeah. How weird is it that we're in an age where social media works that quickly that she was like, oh, yeah, I didn't know it was him. But four days after, like now I've seen the news stories. Yeah. Four four days after she went missing, I picked him up, you know. Of course, the only thing I use Facebook for now is for um, podcast discussion groups. And so yeah, um, most of them are true crime. A couple of them are Hallmark. (laughs) Right. You have to balance it. Duh. yeah, I do. Um, but I, of course, of course, the true crime discussion groups have been popping off this weekend about this case. And it was like, you know, especially Friday night when her boyfriend was discovered to be missing. Um, you know, everyone was like, we are a worldwide network of people that listen to a po- Like, we have got to be able to find this guy. Right. We've all now seen Don't Fuck With Cats. Yeah. We know what Where is body moving? <laughs> <laughs> Somebody get her on this case. She'll crack it in no time. All and of a sudden, her me... computer is just covered in 3,000 pictures of deciduous trees. And she's mm-hmm. like, mm, yep, this is one that's in Yosemite National Park. And he is uh, in the northwest quadrant of the... And it's uh-huh. like, you need to take a nap. Son of a bitch. Yeah. <laughs> Um, the FBI you know, is like, it, God damn it, not again. It makes me... It makes me happy that we have these groups now that are so dedicated to helping families find missing people. And I know Gabby Petito's family has been very much like, get the story out there, make a TikTok, make a Instagram post, Facebook, whatever. Right. Um, but also, like, it, it's kind of... Um, it brings out some really odd theories and I'm like, we need to make sure we don't get to the point where we're just consuming 
an ongoing missing persons case as like entertainment right because that's not what it is and that like the way the theories are spinning and that there's nothing to back these things up reminds me very much of that patreon you did just a couple weeks ago Mm-hmm. Um, where the actual crime was lost in the midst of all no, these conspiracies. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that is something that we as, I mean, our community, our true crime community are consumed. We are, we are fascinated by this macabre sense of the world that we've developed for whatever reason, but we yeah. can't let that become our, we have to remember that it's not, entertainment it's a fascination and we have to see where yes. that line is and it's like i am all for like boots on the ground everybody getting out there and trying to find this girl and know this guy who has run off for whatever reason <laughs> stop it i know what you're thinking <laughs> <laughs> sorry i tried really hard not to <laughs> but um but we just have to make sure that we're we're keeping it you know classy. yeah 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 um, and I want y'all to know, I I was not laughing at anything no. irreverent. When he was Eric's... laughing at my at my use of the phrase "boots on the ground." Yes, because <laughs> one of our friends, I don't know if she misheard me. I don't even remember how this spun out, but she thought that I she started saying "tits on the floor." As the equivalent of boots on the ground, <laughs> because in the middle, I think Fran had altered it to boobs on the ground. I don't know. I don't know how we got there. But when you said boots on the f- ground, I sure did say tits on the floor in my head. <laughs> well, that too. Let's go tits on the floor and find this motherfucker. <laughs> exactly. Probably kill this girlfriend. Oh, yeah. Or at least uh, allegedly, allegedly, allegedly. Mm-hmm. He um, allegedly murdered her or he, at the very least he knows more than he's saying. Yes. Which is nothing. You're saying nothing, so. Yes. Well, on the opposite end of things, Aaron, I didn't have a chance to tell you this because it happened while I was driving to my office tonight. Woo-woo. But okay. um, I'm going to show you a picture. I don't know if you can see it on the screen, but that is a rainbow Aww. that I saw from my office that ended at the casino. So I think that I need to cancel you this recording now and go hit the jackpot the real quick. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. You found the pot of gold. Now, meanwhile, I'm just, I'm like recording this and I have the TV on in the background that's going to play the Emmys here in a minute. And so clearly I have it all together today. Yes. Well. My favorite new salad right beside me. It's great. Are you ready for something that's going to potentially make you cry, but good cry? Yes. When this episode goes live is the anniversary of the day we got the call asking if we could take a little boy into our home. And it's already been a year. Can you believe that? No, I can't. Um, Oh my God. I know. So. I can't imagine. Like, I know I can't imagine my life without him in my life. I can't imagine how y'all feel. (laughs) Well, I was talking last night with one of my friends um and she said it's crazy to think that it's only been a year and that it's already been a year like both of those statements are true that true and crazy (laughs) it's like she can't remember a time before us have you know being parents but also how has it only how has it already been a year because it feels like it was just a few weeks ago Um, exactly i feel the exact same way so 
It's uh, it's a good week. Everything else, mm-hmm. despite everything else, it's a good week for that alone. Um, so I am happy to share that with you and with our listeners because we have the best and most supportive listeners, and we so do. I man, uh, if y'all aren't on our Discord, y'all got to get on it. Yes, please. I need friends. I'm lonely. Erin mm-hmm. thinks she has to pay attention to her real job sometimes and um, I'm not all about that life but sometimes I send a message and she doesn't immediately respond and then yeah. I'm like I must have pissed her off she's done with me so I need people in my discord who are going to give me a, the attention I deserve <laughs> yeah um, so join our discord so you can feed Paul's ego uh- <laughs> hey, I'm a mediocre white man if nothing else it's true. It's true. And you have the confidence of one. Oh, goodness. Well, do you want to hear about this movie? Not yet, because we haven't introduced ourselves, and I know everyone who's listening is so confused. Well. Um, so this is Lifetime Sentence, and I'm Phoebe Judge. And I'm... <laughs> Aaron. I don't know. Sorry. Didn't know we were doing that today. <laughs> Mm, okay. All right. Tell me this. So, I hope this movie is egregious and awful because I have some shit to tell you. It was. Um, Good. So uh, this week I watched A House on Fire. It stars Stephanie March as Deborah Green. She is from Law and Order SVU. She used to be the DA. Okay. Um, that's probably her most famous role, but she was also in The Invention of Lying, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, Conviction, Solar Opposites, which is like a hilarious um, cartoon show on Hulu that okay. uh, my son and I watch together. It's so funny. Um, it also stars Sean Benson as Mike Farrar. He was in The Boys, ARQ, General Hospital. Okay. Um, popular. So, Is oh, and he, he was in Tiny Pretty Things. Oh, okay. He's good looking. Sure. I tend to think the guys on General Hospital are all like really attractive. Okay, he's really hot in these pictures that I'm looking at. Okay. Yes. See, that's what I expected. But in the movie, he was not as. I mean, he was attractive. Like, you could tell he was attractive, but he wasn't, like, playing up his features, you know? Like, they gotcha. Know yeah, yeah, yeah. Connor Peterson, he plays Tim Farrar. Um, he was in Channel Zero, Snowmance. 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 That's the sequel to our first podcast, No Business Like Snow Business. <laughs> um, and A Dog's Purpose, which was pretty popular. Oh, yeah. And... Isla Gordon, she was in this movie, Ruthless Souls, Breakthrough, and Love and Design. Oh, I like that movie. She played kid number two. Oh, well. <laughs> She's got some chops then. Yeah. So we open with the title card that says, Anne Rules a House on Fire. And you, and all, and you turned the movie I off. I was like, fucking Anne Rule. God damn it. <laughs> I hate her. <laughs> And then we open with kids sleeping in their beds while CGI smoke fills the house. 
Oh, good. I love CGI smoke. A woman runs out of the house in her nightgown, screaming for help, and the entire house is engulfed in flames. We flash back to several years before. The woman is a doctor. Um, a patient that she's looking at is screaming, and she asks another doctor what he wants to do. He freezes up, so she springs into action and gives the patient a dose of ketamine. Later in the lounge, the male doctor that was next to her approaches her and is like, um, maybe next time you could give me another minute to, like, think. No, that's not how it works. And I was like, ooh, dead kids and misogyny? I hate this movie. <laughs> oh, we're going to talk about <laughs> lots of misogyny in my notes. Oh, so I'm so glad many, they started it strong. So, so many, many misogynies. But I said so many misogynies. <laughs> um, yeah, so... Um, so the scrubs in this movie are also like really fucking weird so that's great um the what in this movie the scrubs that they're wearing oh, okay the gotcha they are um, not the um the what's that movie you like that show you like Grey's anatomy figs that like yeah, are form flattering no, no. Um, no, they're not only baggy, but they have a square neck. It's an interesting okay. choice for scrubs, for sure. Sarah had some square neck scrubs, and I threw them out because they were ugly. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, no wife of mine is going to be putting, looking not put together while she is saving lives, doing her rotation in the ER in residency. I will not stand for it. That's right. I am part um, of so many simogenies. <laughs> yeah, you are. Um, so, oh, sickles. Um, the doctor who froze encourages another guy to ask her out because he's like, "Ooh, she's like super hot. And she's like so sexy and smart, you know." Um, right. But he's so the, he walks up to her and he's like, um, "He's like." Do you want to go for coffee? And she's like, "Oh, I'm not. I'm not done with this one. Bye." And she like walks away. <laughs> I like her. Mm-hmm. So, um, she, the doctor, <coughs> the first doctor goes back to her, and is like, um, "Deborah, that guy was trying to flirt with you." And she's like, "Huh? Are you sure?" <laughs> and so she's like oh okay and she's also scrapbooking while they're talking so I'm like doctors must have way more time on their hands than I ever thought they did um, yeah no they don't <laughs> and what else taking this new information about the flirting she goes to flirt back and ask him ask him a bunch of diagnostic questions like you do oh right yeah, that's so that's actually how I picked up Sarah in college. I was like, hey, what are your vital signs? <laughs> Girl, are you 80 over 120? Because you're getting my blood pumping. And she's like, those aren't even numbers that make sense. <laughs> I mean, they kind of are, but. <laughs> um, their first date is a six mile run. And I cannot think of anything worse to do on a date. Okay, every one of these things you've just said is a red flag. Like, I'm just telling you. <laughs> he ends the run huffing and puffing, as you do. And um, 
then what the hell where's oh sorry i lost my spot so and then he's like hey can i pick the next date and then they talk about their 10-year plans which really gets me going oh good god <laughs> i'm out i'm out don't put me a coach <laughs> Um, we cut to the police station and he's talking and he's talking about how great Deborah was and how much he loved her. Cut back to their wedding. Mike, his name is Mike. Deborah continues to scrapbook. They have a really ugly comforter. Fast forward to six months before the fire. Their kids are like in middle school-ish. They're going off to school. Mike and Deborah are going to work. They have a better comforter now. I know you were all concerned. Fast forward again to just after the fire, because I love these movies that jump back and forth. They are my yeah. favorite. Um, and the, um, I went to adjust my glasses. I'm not wearing them. Um, <laughs> oh, okay. So we're back after the fire, right? Is that where we ended? Yes. The police are questioning Deborah. She's completely spaced out and talks about how the fire department are all very professional people. <laughs> Back to six months before the fire, Deborah falls in her kitchen and hurts her wrist, but makes it to work just in time to solve a medical mystery, as one does. Oh, great, um, yeah. She she asks her boss about a partnership in their practice, and he's like, "Well, you're late all the time, so no." Um, and her doctor friend later looks at her wrist and prescribes her some medication for it. Mike's at work, and his boss asks him to go to a conference in Baltimore. When Deborah gets home, she takes some of the medicine while spooky music plays in the background. So I assume that this will come back to haunt us. Oh, I'm sure. Um, and it will. Um, so <clears throat> the next day, she drives by the house that ends up burning down and sees that it's for sale. Mike announces at dinner that he's being groomed to be the next head of cardiology. And Deborah heads off to find the camera, but finds more pills instead. <clears throat> okay. She goes to Fair. chat with the lady in a coma about her life problems, how she feels like her kids are holding her back, which, you know, I'm sure Sarah does all the time. Yeah, uh-huh, yep. Um, back at the police station, they ask her if she was on any drugs, and she said she had a glass of wine after dinner. In his room, Mike talks about how Deborah has a history of addiction. Okay. The police asked Deborah if she started the fire, and we just flash back again. Deborah is talking to her boss, who suggests she start working from home, doing peer review and Medicaid processing, which sounds like not being a doctor. Um, so much fun. Okay, so not that it is the same as being a doctor, but I didn't mention this in my notes, and I thought about it. All of the non-doctoring jobs usually pay almost as much, if not sometimes more, than the doctoring yeah. jobs. So oh, like, totally. I'm, um, I'm not mad about it. I'm just saying. So like, Sarah had a friend from residency who didn't pass her boards, so she couldn't practice. So she actually got a gig working for an insurance company as one of their physicians who like reviews cases, and she makes like twice what any of the doctors in this area make. And she wow is just reviewing insurance cases. It's crazy. Um, so Deborah goes home and she cooks dinner and is completely zoned out, knocking things off the table and staring off into space. 
Every time um, you look up to watch the Emmys, I get distracted and want to know what's going on. This is not going to be a good oh, night for either of us. No, <laughs> I have been trying to just get it to where it is playing the Emmys. That's where I, why I've been distracted. Gotcha. I'm back now. <laughs> um, my boss approaches him to ask him if Deborah's okay because the people are noticing that she's acting really weird. Um, Mike covers for her and then he goes home and starts looking through her stuff, looking for drugs. But she catches him, so of course they get into a fight. Um, but they have to pull it together to go to the school fundraiser, you know. Casual, um, yeah. Where Mike meets a woman named Celeste who talks to him all about her work-life balance, which later he decides he should give Deborah all this information to help her with work-life balance. Oh, good. Because he's a helpful man. Good. So many Samogenies. Yeah. It goes about as well as expected. And now we're going to fast forward to the part of the show that I call, oh yes, let's have some great misinformation about depression from a character who's playing a psychiatrist. Yes! Celeste and Mike meet up to chat and she talks about her husband's struggle with depression. She is a psychiatrist. I just want to like point that out again. This woman, Celeste, is a psychiatrist and she says, quote, I know in my head that depression is a, is a disease, but how am I supposed to feel like a good wife when he's so sad he thinks about killing himself? Oh, good. It is about you, Celeste. Good job. That's actually how depression works. It's always about the other person and not other about person. the person yeah. struggling with depression. Yeah. Uh-huh. Exactly. I was like, what? <laughs> what is happening? Um, so, yeah. Then she diagnoses Deborah with bipolar, sight unseen. Oh, good. From the things you told me while you were trying to get in my pants and explain why you have an unhappy marriage, it sounds like bipolar. Now boink me on this couch. <laughs> kind of. Back in the interrogation, I guess they asked Deborah about Celeste because she just says, quote, Celeste, she's a whore. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Listen, so far, I am not on Deborah's side here, but like, also I am. <laughs> I, I was going to say, so far, I like the way they've written Deborah. This is not true to the story, but I like it. No! Yeah! <laughs> then they asked Mike where he was when the fire started. He was like, I was in the hospital with Celeste, who was my friend. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> when they're your friend, you, you overemphasize the word friend. Right. To drive the point home. Right. <laughs> um, Deborah gets her hospital privileges revoked because she hasn't passed her boards yet. Okay. She says she just hasn't had time, but they tell her they can't give her privileges until she passes. So she goes and cries in a supply closet and then goes home and takes the doctor picture out of her scrapbook and tears it up. Oh. She, does, she doesn't tell her husband that she got fired and instead drives him to work and then drives home by herself, stopping to look at the house again on the way. Great. De Deborah's son gets into a fight at school, so she goes to pick him up and then decides to bail her daughter out of school as well so they can go have some fun. But oops, Daisy, Mike's boss tells him that Deborah got suspended from the hospital. <laughs> Awkward. You know, I feel like that would be a really hard thing to hide if you work together. At the same place, yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't know how she thought she was going to get away with that. Um, Deborah and the kids go to the park to eat pizza and make home videos about what they would be doing if they were in school. Mike, meanwhile, goes home and searches the entire house for drugs. Deborah well, and the kids come home. Hmm? That's my natural inclination. 
if I think Sarah has lied to me or covered up the truth in any way, I start digging for drugs first. It's the mm-hmm. only plausible answer. Yeah, your wife is clearly a drug addict. <laughs> Listen, she puts oh, up with God. me every day. If she's not self-medicating, that's on her. <laughs> um, so when they get home, Mike is sitting at the table with a dollhouse. Mike screams at the kids to go to their rooms and then dumps a bunch of pills out on the table. I was like, oop. Oh, okay, so maybe he wasn't too far off. Deborah cries and insists that she's not an addict. He floats the idea that she has a mental health problem and she's like, I'm not crazy. And so he's like, well, you're either crazy or you're an addict. You can't do, like, you can't not be either. And I was like, wow. (laughs) So there are are many options, sir, Mm -hmm. and also Lifetime. Yeah. Maybe so, she's selling the drugs because she lost her job. Ever thought about that? Maybe she's going to work every day yeah. with a bag full of pharmaceuticals. Um, That's on you for not thinking about that option. Absolutely. She begs Mike <laughs> not to give up on their family, and she promises she won't do any more drugs. He decides he wants her to retire early. Um. And focus on the kids, so she promises that she'll do that and be a great mom. So together, they flush all the pills. Uh, you'd figure two doctors would know not to do that. And then Deborah goes downstairs <laughs> to ask her son if Mike leaves, if he'll stay with her, which is weird. Um, the next morning, Deb Deb makes everyone crepes, and Mike takes them to look at the house that Deborah kept driving by. The kids are ecstatic. Deborah calls Mike at work, but he's in a meeting with Celeste. He goes home and finds Deborah and the kids working up the offer on the house. And he's like, uh, I'm super not ready for this. So everyone gets into another huge fight. Um, okay. Deborah runs upstairs and takes the house picture out of her scrapbook and cuts it up too. <laughs> I'm sorry. She's dramatic as fuck. She is a 13 year old girl. Like <laughs> Mike cries to the detectives about how much his kids hated him. Um, one morning, Deborah gets a call from for Mike and she tells the woman that he's not home. She, like, reverse searches the number, and it's from a divorce attorney. Um, Mike is at work, and then suddenly gets a call that his house is on fire. Weird. This is not the the house. This is not the titular house on fire. Yes. Mm -hmm. This is the first house. (laughs) (laughs) Um, um, So... At the hotel, Mike and Deborah make up and decide to buy the house. Mike picks up his daughter from school while his son and a friend make Molotov cocktails. Um, Deborah tells the detectives, quote, boys will be boys. Oh, man. That's what I should have told my mom when she caught me making Molotov cocktails in high school. Mom, boys will be boys. (laughs) The detectives are like, so, do you think your kid's at the house on fire? And Mike is insistent that Tim was not capable of doing something like that. Oh, hey, Celeste and Mike are having an affair. I am shocked. I would have um, never guessed. Yeah. Deborah cries in her car and then starts drinking directly out of a bottle of vodka. When Mike Same. gets home from work, Deborah is upstairs sleeping it off, so he goes to wake her up and starts scolding her, saying that they're calling a psychiatrist right that second. And I get she has a problem and you want her to get help, but you are not helping. Is the psychiatrist Celeste? Because that would be the perfect nail in the coffin. (laughs) Call my friend Celeste. (laughs) 
Um, he accuses her of starting the fire at the first house, and her son tells him to get out of their house and calls him an asshole. Mike yells at him, and so his kid punches him in the face. Yes. So Mike leaves. In his interrogation, he says that Deborah was the reason the kids hated him. The police take both Deborah and Mike's clothes and a hair sample for each of them. Back in the past, Mike files for divorce. Deborah tells her attorney that, she, that he can't take the house, and her lawyer's like, um, you may have to sell the house. And then she starts ranting about how she wants the kids and how Mike is having an affair. And her lawyer's like, what can Mike use against you? And she just gives him a look. So Mike comes over for dinner for reasons, and no one will speak to him. Deborah doesn't even serve him what the rest of the family is eating. And oddly enough, the next day, Mike gets super sick. Oh, okay. Um, and Deborah starts maniacally making a new scrapbook all about darkness and fire and weird shit. So, cool. Okay, listen, I'm in. Mike and Deborah get into another fight in front of their kids, and Deborah starts breaking stuff. Someone had called the police, and oh, it was Mike, and they take Deborah into custody. Now you look like you're at camp. I am. <laughs> um, so. Mike calls the cops on her and the cops like while they're screaming at each other and the cops come in and she's like he's like well she's drunk she's probably on drugs like get her away from here and in front of their kids um, oh good classy I was like so this is also not the way to force someone to get help um Deb gets put on a 5150 it seems and has to go see a psychiatrist she complains about how smart she is and the doctor tells her she needs to get sober. When she gets home from the hospital, she makes everyone's favorite meal, even Mike. Later, he thanks her for dinner and tries to talk to her about the divorce, but then he passes out. Tim calls 911, and they rush into the hospital. Back in the interrogation, they accuse Deborah of poisoning Tim with castor beans, which is what makes ricin. Right, um, right, right. Back in the past, Deborah walks into the hospital and finds Mike and Celeste holding hands in his hospital bed. She puts the soup she brought him on a side table, and I was like, maybe don't eat that, bro. Um, <laughs> and um, begs him not to leave her. They get into another screaming fight in the hospital. Good, good. I'm, I'm like, here where's for the it. nurse being like, get the fuck out? Um, and Mike yells at her that she's not a good mom. And she's a liar. She only cares about status. And I'm like, bro, this is neither the time nor the place. Or really the real issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, then he calls her crazy and tells her that he's going to take the kids from her. She tells him, quote, you will take those kids over our cold, dead bodies and storms out. Oh, good. Wait, pluralized over our cold, dead bodies? Yep. Who's we? I don't know. She's got a royal we? Or does she include the kids with her? I think she means the kids, yeah. Okay. Um, so Deborah goes home and pours a can of beans on the table. Then she destroys her scrapbook and sits on the stairs like a creepy Victorian child before swallowing some of the beans and I guess setting the house on fire. The kids are trapped and Tim puts on the intercom begging for her. Oh, God. Oh, my God. She tells him, she tells him to wait and she's going to go for help. Then she runs out of the house screaming and the house is engulfed in flames. She screams. They call Mike at the hospital, so he checks himself out and goes to the house and screams um, at Deborah, asking her where the kids are, and then screams at her, What did you do? Um, 
Deborah just silently watches the house as it burns down. She tells police there wasn't anything else she could do. They ask her to walk through the events leading up to the fire, and she says she went to bed at 11 and was woken up by the alarm. She went to turn it off at first, but then found that there was smoke, so she called 911. Then she heard Tim, who asked what to do and if he should wake up his sister. But she told him no and to wait for help. Mm. They ask her again if she started the fire, and she says she loves her children more than life itself, itself and then says, I think we're done here. Um, and then she requests to, she requests to be the one to tell Mike that the kids are dead. Oh, shit. Um, I think they say no because the detectives tell him um, that Kelly died of smoke inhalation, which would have been peaceful. And Mike says, what about Tim? And they don't say, but you can tell by his expression that it was not, not so, good, so are there only Fuck two children that. in this movie? Mm-hmm. Weird. Okay. Deb goes to where Mike is and tells him she doesn't have a place to go and he should be... He should have been home where he belonged. Mike gives her a wad of cash and quote asks her, quote, where do you see yourself in 10 years? And then closes the door in her face. Her ending voiceover says that despite how hard she works, she is entering this next chapter of her life alone. She received two concurrent 40-year sentences that she is currently serving, but she is innocent. She loves her children would never do any and would do anything for them. The end. Okay, so this movie was heinous. Yeah. Not that the story's great, but this movie is heinous. Yeah, it's real bad. All right. So, a lot of my information... Aaron just hung up on me. I clicked a... (laughs) (laughs) I was like, Aaron's done with me. She told her part of this story, and then she was like, the Emmys are on, bye, bitch. Okay. I was just trying to eat. <laughs> um, I just dropped my iPad. Okay, I'm okay. So, I got most of my information between Bustle and Wikipedia. Um, mm-hmm. There is a book written, let's see if I wrote the title down, that I'm going to talk shit on in a little bit. Um... I will look it up whenever I get closer to that part of the notes. But there is a book that's got lots of information. I kind of avoided using it and we'll talk about why. All right. So Deborah Green was the youngest of two daughters born to Joan and Bob Jones in Havana, Illinois. And then I spent the entire time I wrote these notes singing Camilla Cabello. Um, okay. <laughs> Um, As a child, she showed obvious signs of intellectual giftedness, and it was even reported that she taught herself to read and write before she was three years old. And personally, I call bullshit on that. I was one of those crazy your-baby-can-read kids who could read full books before kindergarten. Um, But that's because I had a grandmother who taught me all of that. I don't know that it's possible for a a less-than-three-year-old with who is missing the pre-academic skills for reading can master the English language but you know what that's the least of my concerns by the end of these notes um 
But anyway, she was co-valedictorian of her class, and she was a National Merit Scholar, so she was clearly smart and hardworking, and I'll give her that. So she went on to attend University of Illinois, where she majored in chemistry. She had planned on pursuing a chemical engineering uh, or chemical engineering as her career, but she decided to go to medical school instead because she said the market was flooded with engineers, and I didn't think that there was ever a time that there were too many engineers but what do i know um i don't think there has ever been a time where there's been too uh, many engineers yeah i'll you know i was like but you know engineering is really complicated so it's something that doesn't even like slip into my consciousness so maybe there was and i just didn't know that there was an abundance of they're always talking about how there's not enough people in stem yeah that's what i thought too (laughs) so um Anyway, throughout her undergraduate studies, she dated an engineer named Dwayne Green, and then she went to the University of Kansas School of Medicine. While she was in medical school, she and Dwayne got married, and she decided to go into emergency medicine and took a residency in the Truman Medical Center emergency room. Um, So by the end of residency, though, she and Dwayne were separated and divorced soon after, Um, And she went on to say that they were just incompatible. Quote, we had absolutely no common interests, she was later quoted saying. Um, But she said that the divorce was amicable. Okay. Um, So while Deborah and Dwayne were separated, Deborah met Michael Farrar, a student in his 20s who was finishing up medical school. Michael was immediately drawn to Deborah because of her intellect and her energy, um, but he was known to say that he was embarrassed by her, quote, habit of explosively losing her temper at minor slights. Deborah was known to say that Michael was a stable and dependable presence. So maybe they had this, like, opposite to track situation going on. Sure. <clears throat> or, like, um,. I hate the term opposite track, but like, um, like one stabilizes the other, right? Right. Okay. Complimentary. Yes. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, so they married on May 26th, 1979, and Michael was accepted for an internal medicine residency at the University of Cincinnati, so they moved to Ohio together, where Deborah went, where Deborah went on to practice at Jewish Hospital as an emergency physician. She okay. quickly grew tired of life as an ER doctor. And seriously, I would too. Like, it's all just shift work. Um, yeah, you know, if I'm going to be an ER doctor and work in, like, the Gray's Anatomy Hospital, that's one thing. Right. If I'm going to be an ER doctor and work in the Scrubs Hospital, which they say is, like, the most... Accurate true representation. To real life. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then no thank you. Yeah, no. You just you work a week of twelve hour shifts and then you're off a week and then it's a week of twelve hour shifts and your your main goal is to make sure people don't die. Like you put a band aid on big enough to send them to the specialist who can actually fix them. Um yep. which ER doctors have a very important job. It's just not the brain game that I would yes. want. Right. Same. Uh, yeah. So she decided to do a second residency, which then I was like, Maybe you should just stick with ER because like that sounds like a lot of work. Um, oh god residency twice (laughs) right you don't get paid in. i mean you do get paid in residency but it's like first year teacher pay like minimum wage (laughs) for all the shit that you do um 
So she wanted to do this residency in internal medicine, and she actually wound up joining Michael's program. So even though he was younger than her and less experienced, she was actually younger than him in the program. Um, Okay. So um, by the early 80s, the um, Ferrars were living in Cincinnati. And during this time, Deborah suffered a number of medical issues. She had surgery on an infected wrist she was suffering from cerebellar migraines hold on on. do what how do you infect your wrist i think that the you said that in the movie she fell and like hurt her wrist Uh i think that that was true and that like part of the fall was a bad cut that then got like gangrene or something in it or MRSA or so yeah she didn't she didn't cut herself in the movie and the other thing i skipped is like in one scene, her husband is like, what's wrong with your wrist? It's really swollen. And she's like, oh, I fell. And he's like, oh, my God, why didn't you tell me? Like, I could have helped you. And she's like, oh, it's not, it's fine. And he's like, well, here, I'm going to, here's some ibuprofen. Like, she like, doesn't bro, also have a medical no. degree. <laughs> right. <laughs> also, like, anybody can't give themselves ibuprofen. You don't need a degree. He, like, takes it out of his nightstand. And he's like, here's some ibuprofen. And he's like like trying to be like a helpful husband and I'm like bro like you're not doing it good you're not don't good at take it, it all at in this. one place am I right <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so yeah so she somehow got this pretty bad infection she had to have operated on um she was suffering from so Sarah Bre- Sarah Beller Sarah- migraines okay which um I did a paging Dr. Sarah on. She said that this is a migraine that would have affected her coordination, making it impossible to do things like walk in a straight line or do fine motor things with her hands. Right. Um, So they're pretty bad. And then she also suffered from uh, insomnia. Um, And during all of this, right. During all this, she also gave birth to their first child, uh, their only son, Tim, who was born on January 20th, 1982. After a six-week maternity leave, she returned to her fellowship in hematology and oncology at the University of Cincinnati. So she did this second three-year residency for internal medicine and then went on to a fellowship, which is just an extended residency for hematology and oncology. Um, well, it, which it's I know like if you, you want to... Understands the process. If you want to specialize, but, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So... It's not mentioned in any of these sources or any of the sources that I saw, but let me tell you how maternity leave works during residency and fellowship. You lose all your (laughs) sick leave, all your vacation time for the year. And so like, I hope you never get sick again or your baby has no complications. You don't qualify for FMLA in most residencies because of whatever shitty rules your school establishes. Um, Mm -hmm. And then don't dare think of having a second baby during residency or fellowship because then you get what they call off cycle and you can't graduate on time. They just extend the time that you're making zero dollars. So this is why in like residency, getting pregnant is considered the kiss of death. That's how you end up on the OB. That's, I mean, it's then why. Not to have your baby. <laughs> It's why Sarah and I waited till after she was done to even start trying to have kids because you get off cycle in medical school, you get off cycle in residency, like you are signed to medical, to the medical field for seven years before you even get to start doing anything. And it really mm-hmm. does screw up your whole career. Um, and so, um, which is, you know, I don't know why, Aaron, but this, 
seems to indirectly affect women weird and so it's almost that like is medicine weird. is inherently misogynistic and dr sarah has no. to compete with men every day for even an iota of respect that they automatically receive for just having a coveted penis you know if i had to choose a doctor out of a room full of men and dr sarah i'd choose her every time 100 percent. and everyone even if it says was something that. that she was not specialized in even if she's like, oh, I just recently read a book about this. That's all I know. I'd be like, great. You're my doctor. Thanks. I want, oh, you have this super rare illness. I heard somebody pronounce it correctly once. And you're like, yep, that's the woman I want right there. That's the one. Sure. <laughs> so um, anyway, Deborah had the fucking audacity to have a second baby mm. um, named Kate. And so she's, so they have Tim and Kate. They actually have three babies in real life. That's why I stopped you to ask if there were two. Um, mm-hmm. So she had Kate while she was also in fellowship. And so she officially became an imposition on several triggered, triggered white men. And then I put in all caps, but her uterus. Yeah. <laughs> um, now I'm being a little kind to her, but mostly I'm just pissed off about the broken medicine system. Um, yeah. So anyway she was able to complete her fellowship eventually and went on to a private hematology and oncology practice while her husband finished his last year of his cardiology fellowship then they both went on to join well-established medical practices in kansas city missouri after a year deborah started her own practice which thrived until she had the audacity to have a third child and ruin her career oh my god um so their third child sounds like it's all her fault Right, exactly. So their third child, Kelly, was born December 13th, 1988. Um, so it's interesting that they skipped the middle child. Which That's just, exactly the one they skipped. Middle child syndrome is real. Right? As the middle child, 100%. We get ignored all the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, you're going to find it especially egregious that this particular child was skipped. Wait till I tell you why. Oh my god. So the children went to a fancy private school that has its own Wikipedia page. So that tells you exactly how fancy this school must be. Oh my. Um, okay. And Deborah was known to like the parents of the PTSO or whatever as this good mom who really wanted the best for her kids. She encouraged them to pursue whatever activities they wanted. Um, she was kind of like that ideal, the ideal working mom. I say in quotes, like there's a way you do it sure. right, you know, but, mm-hmm. um, there is. There is a way you do it right. Um, um, according to society, at least. To me, right, as exactly. long as my kid ends up alive at the end of the day, I did it right. 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 Sarah's like, is he fed? Is he dressed? <laughs> did he shower at least three times this week? Then we're good. Like, Yeah. <laughs> so, um, Deborah tried to return to her practice after the birth of Kelly, but between maternity leave and then an increase in her chronic pain symptoms, Deborah's practice faltered and she quit practicing medicine to work from home. Um, she worked part time as a medical peer, doing medical peer reviews and um, Medicaid processing. So during so, this time. Question oh, Was this something that she chose to do in real life? Well, so her. I don't know if she chose to but her practice went under so she had to find a way to make money while still like dealing with her chronic pain symptoms that were making it impossible for her to do the work she'd been trained to do but I couldn't I didn't see anything about her not passing her boards or anything like that 
So she wasn't, like, pulled into a meeting where they were like, um, we think you should do this because of work-life balance. Because that, not, to me, was like, bro. Not that I saw. Um, sorry. Which I'm not for her at all. I think no. she's trash. But, like, don't be a, a dick about it. Yeah. You know? Men. So, during this time... It's all she men. Was, right. During this time, she was described as being distant and cold toward her patients and was reported to show obsessive behavior towards her husband. Um, and I'm sure that she was told she should smile more. I'm sure. <laughs> so, Michael... That tracks. Michael alleged that Deborah began self-medicating with sedatives and narcotics to treat the pain from infections and injuries throughout their marriage. In interviews with everybody's favorite Ted Bundy simp, Ed Rule... Um, oh god <laughs> yep he even recounted talking to deborah about quote issues regarding her demeanor handwriting and speech patterns which he decided were signs of drug intoxication and or addiction so she has chronic pain from this infection in her wrist but her handwriting sucking is clearly that she's addicted to opioids yeah thanks cardiologist for your opinion <laughs> now to the real doctors not the cardiologists yeah. aren't but this guy is not yeah, and here's God. the thing i am not for deborah but i am very strongly anti-mike and that's mm -hmm. the thing i want to make yes. clear <laughs> mike is a douchebag now deborah's a murderer but mike is also a douchebag those two things are correct right um so he went on to say that deborah agreed to stop using the medications each time he confronted her so the two older children were at this point really involved in a number of activities tim played soccer and ice hockey and um kate the middle daughter um was dancing with the state ballet of missouri by the age of 10 so she had a very promising ballet career even at a young age uh that's the one they skipped yeah that's the one they skipped what the fuck <laughs> um deborah took Not the children cool. to lifetime not right. cool at all you will be receiving a strongly worded letter about oh. ballerinas and how they should be featured in movies oh we're not done with you being pissed off about the way they ignored her um so deborah took her to the kids through all their activities and the opinions of the other parents were a mixed bag some said that she was a supporting loving mother and others said that she was too hard on her kids and put them down a lot and honestly this is probably how i'm seeing at my son's soccer practices um last something i'm great but like one lady last week told me i was too mean because i made him apologize to another kid so i mm -hmm. like by forcing him to be a good human being i was in fact a fucking monster so you know take these you opinions for exactly what they're worth exactly i was gonna say like any opinion from any kind of like parent of a pto or whatever can uh -huh. shove it up their ass i don't care so michael would go on to say that their marriage was never ideal he said that they never even like said i love you to each other even in the early stages of their marriage when they should have been doe-eyed like honeymooners but um and michael said then why that, did you get married right that's what i thought too Michael went on to say that Deborah, quote, seemed to lack the coping skills most adults bring to bear in challenging times. I'm going to need you to unsay that because I can't. 
<laughs> so um, he said that he, that she would fly into fits of rage, and then I put he probably told her to calm down and asked if she were on her period. Probably, I mean, for, for <laughs> a cardiologist, he has he thinks he knows a lot about the female system, right? Maybe he uh, missed his calling as an OBGYN. <laughs> Maybe you could have stayed home with the kids and been an OB. Right. Instead of the poor he girl went, that had three kids in her residency. He went on to say that she would break things and wouldn't even care if they were in public. And God forbid somebody might see them have a fight. <laughs> Michael said he worked long hours during the early 90s just to avoid arguments with Deborah and, quote, what he perceived as his wife's shortcomings as a homemaker. Yes, that's right. His wife with chronic pain who was raising three children and still working part-time doing doctor peer reviews on complex journal articles and Medicaid cases, she was failing as a homemaker, Aaron. How very dare she. I, I don't even know what to say because I don't want it to seem like I'm sticking up for this woman who murdered her children. But, like, also, what the fuck? No, again, I'm not for her. I'm just anti-Mike. Yes. Oh, this woman like is... A, like a, a nightmare. Right. Um, Michael would further allege that when he and Deborah would fight, she would talk to the children like small adults, telling them everything she felt Michael had done wrong. So this would in turn turn the children against Mike and cause them to act out against him. And I'm like, I don't think you probably needed any help for your kids to not like you. Yeah. If you're like um, screaming at their mother in front of them about how she's not a good enough homemaker at the home that they live in and are raised in. Right. Um, sometimes he said... Uh, Michael and Tim would even get into also, physical like, altercations. But also, you should not involve your kids in your marital. No, no, you should it's absolutely not, cool. not. If she did that, that's monstrous. not cool at all. Yeah, but I'm just saying, fuck, I but... don't think that. Um, I don't think that they needed any help being turned against him. Is what I'm saying. Like, mm -hmm. um, you know, nothing says healthy fathering like a man to admit who admits to having fist fights with his own child. So, in January 1994, Michael asked Deborah for a divorce. And although Deborah had suspected Michael was having extramarital affairs, she was taken by surprise at his request for a divorce. According to Wikipedia, she, quote, responded to his asking for a divorce explosively, shouting and throwing things. Michael moved out of the family okay. home, though they stayed in contact and split custody while the divorce was being settled. While separated, though, they decided to try to reconcile and thought that maybe a bigger house would help their, like, some of their homemaking woes. And just a word of caution from the future, y'all, it won't. A bigger house just means more space for more crap. Heads up. Like, you're not going to get organized in a bigger house. You're just going to bring more crap into that house. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For sure. So, about four months into the separation, they put a bid for a six-bedroom home in a nice neighborhood, but backed out before the sale was finalized. Michael said that he'd backed out because of his continued worries about the state of their relationship and their unpaid debts. And I do get that. Two medical schools is expensive. Yeah. One medical school is expensive. Well, two, you know, if you are thinking that you might end up separated, don't buy a bigger house first. Right. Um, so shortly after their bigger home purchase fell through, however, 
the couple's home caught fire while the family was out. Insurance investigators determined that the fire was caused by an electrical short and a power cord. Um, and though the house was repairable, the couple's home insurance paid out and the couple's home paid out, like insurance paid out on the damage to the home. Um, the mm-hmm. couple decided to move on and Deborah and the children moved into the apartment in which Ferrara had been living during the separation while they were trying to renegotiate the purchase of that big house. Okay. So they put extra effort into avoiding the issues that had caused marital issues um, before their separation Deborah said she, or Deborah tried to focus on keeping the new house cleaner and cooking delicious meals for the family. And I rolled my eyes really hard because he sounds like the guy who expects dinner to be on the table when he gets home. God damn it. Dude, you're a cardiologist. Eat a power bar and shut the fuck up. <laughs> um, and Michael like it's agreed. Not like, you're, like, it's not like you're making, like, you're eating, like, actual food all day which maybe that's why he's hungry and he wants food on the table also what 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 is the end of the day for you if you're the head of cardiology somewhere right never especially because he hadn't been coming home to avoid seeing his family because the next sentence i have written down is he agreed to come home from work to see his family more often so like she's having to actually like make changes and he just has to stop working a little bit earlier um which you know it really is a sacrifice to do the bare fucking minimum it really is i feel bad for this guy (laughs) these improvements lasted just a few months but by the end of the year they'd fallen right back into fighting and hating each other and the marriage was crumbling again so michael had planned a family trip to peru in june of 1995 and he didn't want her bad attitude to ruin things so he waited until after that to tell her he wanted a divorce again So, during their trip to Peru, which was sponsored by the kids' private school, Michael met and befriended Margaret Hacker, whose kids attended school with his. She was an RN married to an anesthesiologist, and she was also unhappy in her marriage. So, they did exactly what you expect and started an affair. Basically, the day they came back from Peru. That is, like, the only thing you can do if your marriage is in trouble. You can't work on it. You can't you can't separate or file for divorce you have to have an affair that's like the that's the rule right with a with a woman whose kids go to school with yours because you don't you don't want to make their lives any easier by any means you have to teach them that life's not fair and everything sucks a hundred percent always so in late july michael asked for a divorce again deborah said that she was saddest over this because a broken home might disqualify their kids from debutante events such as the bells of the american royal um which (laughs) just goes to show how out of fucking like out of touch with reality she is so again maybe they were gonna get invited to 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 cotillion oh my god (laughs) We'll teach them manners and the box steps. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the two most important things, Aaron. Manners and box steps. Come on now. Oh my god. <laughs> also, I definitely Googled American Royal last night because it sounds like a racist event, but I didn't find anything that indicated it's a racist event, so maybe they dodged a bullet. I think it's it may and correct you guys if I'm wrong that's fine Um, I think it has to do more with like lineage 
So this is actually and an event put on by the FFA. Um, oh, so okay. it is okay. not what it sounds like. Like to be the bell, a bell of the American Royal is actually a group of women who volunteer to put on big events that this FFA group does is what it looked like. But all their pictures, like they're really focusing on diversity in their pictures, which first of all, I appreciate. That's Let's amazing. go for it. But um, there was like, I, so I thought that they were going to be kind of like the veiled prophet whenever I heard that name, just the bells of the American Royal. I felt like it was yeah. going to be a veiled prophet ball, um, but it was not. So <laughs> that was on me. Come to our plantation party. <laughs> right, exactly. That's what it sounds like. <laughs> so um, anyway, despite the impending divorce, Michael initially declined to move out of the family home. Um, he was concerned that Deborah, who had never been a heavy drinker before, was all of a sudden drinking large quantities of alcohol and um all the while it says while she was supervising the children but like she's a work from home mom and you live at the office so she's always fucking supervising your children i <laughs> <laughs> That face is how I felt, yes. So, in the movie, when she gets sent to the um, the hospital, the okay. mental hospital, she, like, the psychiatrist is talking to her about, like, you need to get sober, you're, you know, using drugs and alcohol to, like, numb your, your emotions or whatever, and... I'm not saying that the psychiatrist was wrong. However, her response, Deborah's response, was very interesting. She responded and was like, or maybe my husband's having an affair with someone that goes to my, whose kids go to my kid's school. Um, I lost my, my privileges at this hospital. Um, my husband wants a divorce and like uh, all this other stuff. She's like, maybe I'm just having a bad year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that makes sense like, to me. Maybe you are. <laughs> <laughs> no. I mean, I'm not saying that she wasn't addicted and that like didn't need to be taken care of, but maybe she was just having a rough time. That right. happens. Yeah. I, oh, I yeah. have gone through times where I've been a heavy, heavy drinker, and then I, like, get my shit together, and I'm like, oh, I can go, like, weeks and weeks without drinking. It's fine. Right. <laughs> um, so, um, anyway, she continued the routine of, like, driving the kids to their activities, uh, but she would spend her evenings drinking at home, sometimes to the point of unconsciousness, and nearly always until she lost what inhibition she had left about her language in front of children. Um, again, this is information that came from Mike. Um, she actually was not very public with interviews ever, really. Um, and so, but Mike was like all about some cameras on him. Yeah, he sounds like he really loves the spotlight. So, on one occasion, Mike was called home from work by the children who'd found their mother unresponsive. Deborah had disappeared from the home by the time that Michael had arrived, um, and he eventually discovered that she'd been hiding in the basement while he looked for her, but she claimed that she had gone wandering through the town hoping to be hit by a car. Okay, that 
would earn you a trip to the therapist in my yeah. eyes. There we go. There yeah. it is. There it is. Found it. <laughs> We're there. So Michael <laughs> moved out of the family home in early autumn due to concerns about his own safety. So early in the morning on October 24th, Michael receives a phone call from his neighbor saying that their big home, um, where Deborah and the kids were still living, was on fire. Immediately, he got mm-hmm. in the car and drove there. A 911 call was made from the home at 12.20 a.m., but the caller didn't say anything to the dispatcher. They just hung up. So a police, Great. A police, <clears throat> a police cruiser arrived <laughs> shortly after and discovered the house on Quit. fire. Great call the police! <laughs> <laughs> Rude. <laughs> So call the police. <laughs> my gosh, I'm never talking to you again. I'm just gonna hold this screen up to you. This the, the rest of this podcast will be just you reading my iPad off the screen silently, maybe muttering a few words to yourself out loud. Call the police. <laughs> you remember last week when I couldn't stop laughing? Yes! Here we are! <laughs> um, oh god, remember last week when I forgot to cut out a whole like 12 minute bathroom break while I sang doo-wops? <laughs> I do! <laughs> oh my god. Okay, so, anyway. <laughs> the, the Palouse cruiser arrived shortly after and discovered the house on fire. So he, they called for the fire department who were dispatched by 1227. So this is a span of seven minutes between the initial phone call to now and arrived shortly afterward. Aaron is dying. <laughs> when the first firefighters arrived, they reported that Deborah and Kate, the middle daughter, were safely outside the house. So Kate survived this goddamn fire and Lifetime cut her out. <laughs> oh, my god <laughs> lifetime was like she's unimportant nope we don't need They're her like she does ballet and she doesn't die so we can't use her in this movie at all <laughs> canceled cancel culture kate she does ballet and didn't fucking die <laughs> the worst so why jesus h christ I cannot so um Oh God! Oh, so both of them were still in there, like be- were in their bedclothes, and the firefighter said that she, that Kate, begged them to go in and save Kelly, her six-year-old sister, and Tim, her thirteen-year-old brother, who were still inside. They also reported that Deborah was standing next to Kate and was quote very calm and very cool. At least two firefighters went in to search for the children, but they were unable to locate them in the home because it was so consumed by flames that only a small portion was even accessible. Oh my god. Um, so by the time the flames were under control, the house was nearly totally destroyed. Only some stonework and the damage and the garage, the damage and the garage were left standing. Um, the fire had spread quickly enough that even with the high speeds of the night uh, the high speed winds of the night before considered they opened an arson arson investigation the bodies of the two remaining children were found the next morning kelly was found in her bed most likely having died of smoke inhalation which as you mentioned is like a peaceful way to go 
you know, like she didn't know that she was under duress. Um, yeah. But Tim was found in the kitchen. Initially, they believed that he had died while trying to escape, but it was later discovered that he'd most likely died um, of a combination of heat and smoke inhalation in his bedroom and had fallen through the burning floor when it where it had been discovered, which is somehow more gruesome. Oh my god. So, um, the surviving members of the police were taken from uh, the surviving member of the family were taken to the police station for questioning the surviving members of the police. And by that, I mean the rock band. They had to sing every little thing she does as magic just to like, no, they had to have a meeting about how they had to change their name to the police. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, the surviving members of the family were taken to the police department for questioning. Detectives were sent to the house to begin an investigation and local detectives separated Deborah, Mike, and Kate, who was accompanied by Mike's parents. Um, and they began to question Thank God. Audrey. I was like, uh, I know you're not questioning that girl without someone else with you. Yeah. With no. Her. So her grandparents were there with her. So I have their versions of the events broken down by person. So. Okay. Starting with Deborah. According to the video of the police interview... Deborah reported that the family had a normal day before the fire. The children went to school, performed their chores, and then went to their after-school activities. Kate went to dance, and Tim went to a hockey game. Um, Farrar had taken Tim and Kelly to the hawker game. To the hawker hockey game, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> Is that next to the police station? <laughs> Fuck everybody. <laughs> While Deborah took Kate to the ballet lessons, the family regrouped around 9 p.m. when Tim and Kelly were dropped back at their house for dinner. Deborah told police that she had one or two drinks after dinner and went to her bedroom, leaving. She left at once to speak to Tim in the kitchen sometime between 10 and 11 in the evening, and then he went to bed. Kelly and Kate had gone to bed earlier, each taking one of the family's two dogs with them. Um, Deborah said that she'd fallen asleep around 11.30, and that at some point before falling asleep, she recalled that she'd spoken to Mike, um, who had phoned while a- who had phoned, asking which member of the household had paged him. She told police that she and Mike were in the process of a divorce, and she did not know how far along they were, but that the children were very upset at the prospect um, and that she herself was not looking forward to having to restart her life. Deborah went on to say that she was awakened sometime after midnight by the sound of the home's fire alarm system. She initially assumed that it was a false alarm that sometimes her dogs trigger the burglar alarm and that's what she woke up thinking it was. So she tried to set off the like home burglar alarm um, but that it continued sounding, and so she opened her bedroom door and found smoke in the hallway. She exited the house using a deck that connected her bedroom, that connected to her bedroom. Um, While standing on the deck, she heard Tim on the home's intercom system calling to ask what he should do. And her quote was, he used to be my 13-year-old when... Yes, they do that in the movie. 
Okay. So it is very interesting. All of her speech about Tim and Kelly immediately went to past tense. Um, And that is something that they pull up. So like that they brought up in her uh, trial. Right. So Deborah explained to police that um, she told him to stay in the house and wait for firefighters to rescue him. Um, she said she knocked on a neighbor's door and asked them to call 911. And she returned to the house. She found Kate, who'd climbed through her second floor bedroom window, onto the roof uh, of the garage and sl- like shimmied down. Oh, no. And so she stepped over to where Deborah was. And Deborah called for Kate to jump. Um, and Kate jumped, and Deborah fucking missed her. So. <gasps> I don't mean to laugh, but I don't know if this was part of the plan or if, like, it was just a freak accident. It sounds like just fucking chaos down here. Yes. So, detectives noticed, or noted that in her interview, she did not appear to be or have been crying. In fact, they said her manner was, quote, talkative, even cheerful. She repeatedly referred to Tim and Kelly in the past tense, and she referred to all of her children by their ages rather than their names. So she was like, my son, he was 13. He used to be my 13-year-old, was stuck in his room. Yeah, that's or like, fucking weird. My, my daughter, who used to be my six-year-old, like, it's very strange speech pattern. Yeah, um, that is really weird. I don't like it. Her accounts of times from the previous evening varied and she seemed uncertain what time she'd done things like gone to bed whenever they followed up on questions. Okay. So at 5.30 a.m., a detective arrived from the fire scene to advise um, those at the police station that Tim and Kelly had been found dead. Deborah initially reacted with sadness that changed to anger very quickly. She shouted at detectives, claiming that firefighters had not done enough to save the children where previously she'd been cooperative and friendly with the detectives, she now became like began to attack them verbally. She called them and their methods pathetic and said that um, they had withheld from her the knowledge of her children's deaths um, and demanded to be allowed to see Mike and the remains of the family's home. Um, and Deborah stressed to police that she wanted to be the one to, quote, tell my husband our babies are dead. But that request was not granted. Good. Yeah. I don't like that. No. Um, Also, so all of this information, like this interview took place before she was told the children were dead. So she was referring to them in the past tense before it was even confirmed. Whereas most, many people would still be holding out hope. You know, I struggle with this one because I don't know... I don't know what I would think in that situation. I know I don't know what I would think either, but I know that um, speech and like speech analytics say that more often parents are holding out hope until it's confirmed, or that they um, they are reticent to accept the past tense words of their of their children's lives their children, or their family yeah. members' lives uh-huh. because that would. Um, that would show kind of like giving up and I know that yeah. to be sure because of one of the books I wrote um, it was a big thing whenever 
um, the main character shifted from using present tense to past tense about somebody who died in his life. Um, and I wanted to research to see like how that typically worked. Right. Um, so anyway, um, so Deborah was released from the police station, um, after questioning and so she had nowhere to stay and Mike refused to let her stay in his apartment but did give her some cash so she rented a hotel room excuse me um Deborah's Deborah's divorce lawyer Ellen Ryan later found her there or found her later in the day in a distraught state she reportedly asked Ellen whether her children had died chanted rhythmically about their deaths and seemed unable to care for herself so Deborah was then located, transported to a local hospital for treatment. Um, right. But she remained emotionally unstable, suffering from insomnia, and appearing to Ryan to be unable to take care of her like day to day life, even after her release from the hospital. Mm-hmm. So Michael's version was. Um, they began interviewing him at six twenty a.m., informing him immediately that the bodies of Tim and Kelly had been recovered. He told police about the t- deterioration. That's interesting. Uh huh. Yep. Mm, I don't. I don't love that. He told police about. I'm not saying the, she didn't do it. I'm just saying that like they should have been treated the same way. Right. Um. <clears throat> So he told police about how his marriage was falling apart and how his health had been deteriorating over the past six months. In August, he had fallen ill with nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. He initially assumed it was a residual effect of um, the travels, traveler's diarrhea that many people had gotten on the Peru trip. Um, he recovered sure. from the initial bout of symptoms but relapsed a week later and was hospitalized on August 18th with severe dehydration and high fever. In the hospital, he actually developed sepsis, and doctors identified Streptococcus viridians, um, which had probably leaked through damaged digestive tissue, um, and said that this was the cause of his sepsis. However, they could not pinpoint the root cause so through his though his illness was severe and possibly life threatening he was eventually he eventually recovered and was released from the hospital on august 25th that night however mm-hmm. shortly after eating a dinner that deborah had made for him he got sick again and started vomiting uh, and had to be returned to the hospital a third bout of these symptoms struck on september 4th days after he was released from the hospital for the second time Basing their conclusions on the likelihood that his illness was related to Peru, doctors narrowed down the possible causes for his illness to a handful of um, possible illnesses, but none of his symptoms fitted anything perfectly. They said it was either typhoid fever, tropical sprue, or gluten-sensitive enteropathy. Enteropathy? Sorry, I was like, I'm going to say this wrong. Um because he but he noticed that each time he returned from the hospital he became ill again um almost immediately and he speculated that it might have been due to the stress of his failing marriage um or maybe a change from his bland hospital diet to the normal one at home which 
I'm sorry. I like to throw into this in my head canon. I know I don't have any proof that it's true, but since one of their fights was about like how she didn't cook enough, I like to believe that he was like, I shouldn't have fucking asked her to cook anymore. Like, this is on me. Good enough, buddy. Uh, so, when um, Mike's girlfriend, Margaret Hacker, that RN that I mentioned, um, told him he suspected he was being poisoned by his wife, he initially wrote off the idea as ridiculous. Um, so, though Deborah was caring for Mike in the family home while he recovered from his illness, she was also drinking heavily and increasingly often, claiming to be contemplating suicide or want Margaret Hacker dead. In late September, Mike searched the house and her belongings. In her purse, he discovered seed packets labeled as castor beans, a copy of a supposedly anonymous letter that had been sent to Mike urging him not to divorce... Uh, not to file for divorce and empty vials of potassium chloride. So he removed all items from her purse and hid them. Okay. The next day he asked Deborah who had to this point, no interest in gardening that he knew of what she intended to do with the castor bean seeds. And she said that she was going to plant them. And, um, he pressed her until she said that she was contemplating suicide. So her drinking was now especially heavy and her behavior grew stranger. So he contacted police for assistance in placing her in psychiatric care. Police who responded to the home described Mike and the children as shaken and Deborah's behavior as bizarre. Though Deborah did not seem to hold the police pre police's presence against them and gave them no resistance, she denied being suicidal and called Mike a series of obscenities. Mike showed the police the suicide, so, sorry, the seed packets and other items that he found in her purse the day before, and the police took her to a nearby emergency room. The physician who attended to her there found her to be smelling strongly of alcohol but not visibly drunk. Um, he said that she appeared unkempt and that her demeanor was not unusual for someone going through a bitter divorce and noted that Deborah professed no desire to hurt herself or others when the hospital inter when the doctor interviewed her privately. However, when Ferrer came when Mike came into the view of the hospital, her demeanor completely changed. According to the doctor, Deborah spat at him and called him obscene names and said, You're going to get these kids over our dead bodies. Like that was an actual direct quote. Okay. <clears throat> yep. And I knew that, but, like, I still don't know what she means, except that it has to be in the kids. I don't either. But, like, I had to I had to stop it and be like, is that what I just heard? Because it seems weird to say over our dead bodies. Right. So, um, Deborah was persuaded to, um to agree to a voluntary commitment rather than being forced like instead of a 5150 he, con okay. he convinced her to sign herself in um and so she <clears throat> then left the er ama she was found hours later apparently having decided to walk home from the hospital and was brought back to the hospital and agreed to another voluntary commitment this time at the meninger clinic in topeka kansas Okay. 
So while in the hospital for treatment, she was diagnosed with major bipolar depression with suicidal impulses. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. They're in Kansas City. Uh Uh-huh. They live in Kansas City, Missouri. Yes. Which is, I'm working on all this geography out in my head, which is like borders with Kansas. Just over the border, yeah. Kansas City. Yeah. So it's not weird for her to like go to a place in another state. Right. Okay, got it. I'm like, oh my God, I it would be like I, so, I needed to work all that out, like in my head, and the only way to do that is to, to do it out loud. <laughs> not, not that it's the same, but like because of where I am in Louisiana, our closest methadone clinic is actually in East Texas. It's like 45 minutes from here. The methadone clinic that's in Louisiana is four hours from here, and so people who go to something like that go to Texas for that. I mean, I'm honestly surprised there is a methadone clinic in Texas, and they're not just like die. Right. Um, yeah. But it's oh, well, like how, I didn't say you, that it's uteruses. That's what they want to die. True. No, they want my uterus to just produce children until I die. Um, that's also fair. But then also, please don't ask for public assistance because fuck you. Yeah. Um, it's like how Ohio and Kentucky are so close together. Yes. The people just kind of like. And I guess if you live near the border in any state, you kind of state hop a lot. I don't. I don't live near the border. No, you don't. Of any other state. I live the closest border I live to, ne- uh, it's next Mexico. to is Mexico. <laughs> and that's what still three hours from you. It's uh, it's like two hours. Yeah, two hours. Okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um. So. Um. So she was diagnosed depending with depending this... on which port of entry I want to go through. Right. She was diagnosed with major bipolar depression with suicidal tendencies um, and placed on Prozac, Transine, and Clonopin. Um, and this sounds well, like she did a take cocktail a Clonopin and, and a nap. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we all, we all need that sometimes. Um, so she returned from home after, or returned home after four days in the hospital. Um, and in the meantime, Mike had researched castor beans and come to the conclusion that. Deborah had poisoned his food with the ricin that could be derived from the beans. So that's why he moved out. But he just said that he was concerned about like how angry and aggressive she'd gotten. He never confronted anybody about the poisoning. Instead of like calling the cops or anything, he was like, I'm just going to move out and leave my kids with you while you're busy poisoning people. I think that if I thought I was being poisoned, I would probably tell someone. Yeah, I, I yeah. I would at least tell our group chat, you know. Right, right. I'd be like, "Hey guys, I think I'm being poisoned." Just and I'd be like, "Hey, can you track your symptoms?" Because like I always have the wrong answer. Nothing I ever give is the appropriate. Like I try so hard, <laughs> and it's never the appropriate answer. And so I'd be like, "Well, can you just tell us what it's like?" Because I've never been poisoned, and I want to see it through your eyes. And inevitably, Fran will send me a message. What the fuck was that? She does all the time when I give an incorrect response. And I deserve it. Like, I'm glad she's there to follow up on me. But. (laughs) I don't even do that. I'm just like, whatever. (laughs) No. Like, there was one time that, that for real, I said something that I felt was the appropriate response. And it was not. And Fran literally just called me out on it and was like, what the fuck was that? You need to delete it. (laughs) Wow. I must have missed it because like nothing comes to mind. So, um, 
so anyway, um, Michael said that on the day of the fire, about a month after his last release from the hospital, he'd taken the day off work. It was the first day of what he intended to be a week-long vacation to recover some strength um, after restarting his job post-hospital. He'd spent the afternoon with Margaret and then picked up Tim and Kelly from Tim's hawker game, as I said earlier. Um, <laughs> he dropped the children back off with their children at about 8.45. He had dinner with back Margaret. Back off with their left... children? Do what? You said you, he dropped the children back off with their children. Yeah, listen. So now we're having babies watching babies. It's the It's my new business model. Fran <laughs> drop the <laughs> drop the children back off with their mother at about eight forty five. Had dinner with Margaret and then left around eleven fifteen in the evening. Throughout the evening on October twenty third, a series of phone calls between Deborah and Mike escalated into a confrontation. Mike was convinced that Deborah was continuing to drink heavily while she should have been caring for the children and told Deborah that he knew she had poisoned him and that he was going to call social services to protect the children if she failed to get her life together. After the last call between Deborah and Michael, Michael watched TV alone in his apartment until about 1230 when a neighbor's phone call alerted him to the fire. During his interview after the fire, he his eyes were red, his voice trembled. Um, he said that Deborah had been very concerned about money in the context mm-hmm. of their impending divorce and that she may have set fire to the house to garner an insurance payout, but that she had never given any indication of intending to harm the children. Um, so after his interview... Michael immediately filed for divorce from Green and for custody of Kate, who had been taken by his parents while they dealt with police. A court later awarded temporary custody to Michael's parents due to Deborah's instability and Kate's professed anger with her father. Deborah was allowed supervised access during this period, while Michael's visits were not required to be supervised. Okay. Um, so now Kate's version of events. Again, okay. why did they cut out this whole ass surviving human being who gave testimony? Like, I don't understand. I don't either. I'm really so confused. she stated that on the night in question, she'd woken up to find the fire already burning. Seeing smoke seeping to her room, she opened the bedroom door and called to her brother, then closed the door and placed the 911 call that you know, somebody called in and hung up. That was Kate. She then crawled mm-hmm. out of her bedroom window to escape the fire. Kate reported to police that when she called her mother, af- called to her mother after escaping onto the roof, Deborah had been terribly upset and called for J- Kate to jump into her arms, and that Deborah missed catching her when she jumped, but Kate was not hurt. I'm sorry, I'm laughing again. Just, I'm picturing this scene where this girl has escaped a fire and her mom's arms right. are in here and she's like, just jump to me and then misses. Yeah, and, and then she's like, oh no, I missed. <laughs> exactly. So weird. <laughs> so, um, sorry, honey, I heard a noise and I turned around to <laughs> investigate. So, um, she said that Michael came up a few minutes later and that Michael had been accusatory toward 
um, Deborah and that Deborah had been crying and worrying about her missing children. So her testimony is that he ran up and immediately said, what did you do? This is all your fault. Why are my children burning up? Essentially, like not those words, but he just came straight for what have you done? What have you done? And Kate was like, De- definitely not the time for this phone, for this conversation. Yeah. I was like, can you not please? Thank you. <laughs> So Kate's like, I'm having to nurse this broken clavicle from where my mom let me yeet myself off the garage. (laughs) So (laughs) according to... Oh, God. Sorry. That just reminded me of um, a part, like a TikTok where they were talking about the Texas, um, the law, SB8, and it was like... um, there's, they refer to it as yeetus the fetus. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so, so um, it's okay. So according to Kate, Michael had moved out of the family home and um, had ignored Deborah's desire for an amicable samar- separation. Kate said that she loved and respected her mother and that all of the children had good relationships with her. And that she was angry with her father for upsetting her mother by leaving. When pressed, she did acknowledge that her mother had begun to drink large large quantities of alcohol. And she denied that she'd ever seen matches in the house and expressed surprise that Tim had not escaped out the same route she had, which was via a bedroom window onto the roof that he could have accessed easily to. So, the Eastern Kansas Multi-Agency Task Force was called to conduct an arson investigation on their home on October 24th. Fire investigators and search teams came together and focused on determining the origin and cause of the fire, searching through the debris for usable evidence and interviewing witnesses. A dog trained to detect the scent of fire accelerants was brought in to, was brought in to assist in searching the house. Investigators ruled out common causes of accidental fires, including electrical panels and furnaces, um, and they determined that the basement level of the home, which contained the furnaces, had not been a point of origin either, um, but that two small fires unconnected to the main building had occurred in that area. Poor patterns were found on the ground and on the ground and second floors, indicating that a flammable liquid had been poured there and covered many areas of the ground floor. It blocked off the stairway from the second floor to the ground floor and covered much of the hallway on the second floor. The poor pattern stopped at the door to the house's master bedroom, but had soaked into the carpeting in the hallway leading to the children's bedrooms. Okay. So investigators could not determine which liquid was used as an accelerant, but they proved that the family's gasoline can had not been used. Somewhere between 3 and 10 U.S. gallons, or 11 and 38 liters, had been poured throughout the house. Okay. Concluding that the fire was a result of arson, the investigators on October 26th called in a second task force, this one focusing on a homicide investigation. On October 27th, the district attorney was informed that the investigation was now criminal. Okay. So, in seeking who'd set the fire to the home, investigators looked for first physical evidence of fire setting upon those who'd been in the house. They suspected that because of the use of an accelerant, the fire may have flashed over the point of ignition and singed or burned the person who set the fire. So... 
they tested the clothing worn by Michael and by Deborah the night uh, on that night and took samples of the hair um, of both of them. Neither of their clothing showed evidence of having been in contact with the accelerant, but um, Deborah's hair was. Oh, sorry. Michael's hair showed no signs of singeing, but Deborah's, which had been cut twice between the time of the fire and the time that they took samples, showed significant singeing. And that feels like a lot of haircuts very close together. Also, um, I'm sorry. On the Emmys, on the Emmys, they have. Do you re- like? I forgot this even happened because the world is a fucking nightmare. Remember the debate where there was a fly on Mike Pence? Uh huh. Did he win something? They're showing that. Did the fly win? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. Man, I hope the fly wins. He <laughs> but, um, so, let's see, where was I? So, her hair, which had been cut twice, showed significant signs of singeing. Which is a lot of time to cut your hair in a couple of hours. Like, a, like I think this was within two weeks between them, like, concluding that it was arson and them investigating them. Oh, that's, like, two oh, haircuts okay, in two okay. weeks. That's, I still feel like that's a lot of haircuts. Even I don't get my haircut movie, that often. It was, like, very, very quick. It was, like, the same day, so. Um, detectives recalled that um, Deborah had denied ever being in close proximity to flames she reported leaving the house after seeing smoke and she flat out said that she'd not come into contact with the fire on the deck or out like outside her bedroom or in the process of of having kate eat herself um so it's strange that her hair was singed and neighbors of the family reported that when deborah had come to their door um her hair had been wet huh okay that is yep that's weird yep so um don't like that though their suspicions pointed to deborah green investigators still continued to receive tips attributing the fire to any number of people and the investigation continued with no public statement about suspects so because of mike's interview um about the poisoning that was revealed detectives investigated the origin of the castor beans that had led to police investigating this domestic dispute in september the label on the seed packets identified a chain of stores where these were po- probably bought. So an officer um, found contact information for a particular, like for one of the particular stores in Deborah's address book. So the detectives contacted that store to ask if any of the employees remembered selling castor beans, which are out of season in the fall. So it should have stuck out as like weird. Yeah. Um, a clerk recalled that in September, a woman had ordered 10 packets of the seeds and explained that she needed them for schoolwork. The clerk gave a description of Deborah and, tentative, and then tentatively identified her in a photo lineup as the person who bought these seeds. Um, okay. Register tapes showed that um, something had been purchased that was exactly equal to the price of 10 packets of seeds um, okay. on September 20th or September 22nd. It, the records were a little unclear as to which date, but either way, the, that date corresponds with the start of his poisoning. Um, there's also no records earlier of purchases that could have corresponded to him getting ill of that time of the year. 
Okay. Um, so then Michael actually had to undergo surgery in November to treat an aneurysm that was caused by the poisoning. Um, so before the surgery though, he did submit blood samples to the crime lab to be tested for rice and antibodies. Um, so, so Deborah was arrested on November 22nd in Kansas city, shortly after dropping Kate off for ballet. Deborah's attorneys requested that if arrested, Deborah be allowed to turn herself in voluntarily but the police and district attorney felt that her behavior was too unpredictable and chose to arrest her without warning okay deborah was charged with two counts of first degree murder two counts of attempted first degree murder and one count of aggravated arson um and in a press conference district attorney paul j morrison cited a domestic situation as the motive for her alleged crimes she was initially held on a $3 million bond, which is the highest bail ever recorded for that county. Yeah. A pretrial show, uh, a pretrial, a pretrial show cause hearing in the case began in January of 1996. Um, her defense team claimed that the fire in the family home had not been set by Deborah, but by their dead son, Tim. Uh-huh. Dad, Dad. Um, you know we we've been really pulling for you this whole episode, but <laughs> you done fucked up now. That's that's where I lost. Like I could have almost had, like I could have even almost said, like maybe Mike set her up until they were like, you know who we can blame it on? The dead kid who can't fucking defend himself, um, because the police had in fact found him with Molotov cocktails once. So the <laughs> defense then went further to say that Tim is the one who poisoned Mike um, because Tim did most of the cooking in the household. He's fucking dead. What the? You're cutting out. I have no idea what you said, but I agree with it. No, I'm not saying anything. I can't can't speak. So sometimes when the microphone gets too loud, uh, Discord cuts you down, and I can't hear what yeah. you've said, and so sometimes I don't get it until you send me your audio, and I thought that's what was going on, and I was like, Erin looks like she's saying something real good, I have no idea what it is, so I'm just gonna agree! <laughs> yep. Yeah. I have no words. So, um... So Mike underwent surgery, like I mentioned, in 1995, um, and they were actually afraid that he wouldn't survive the surgery, so they had him videotape his testimony, knowing that his testimony was kind of the center of their case, uh, for the prosecutors, yeah. I mean. So, But the surgery was successful, and he was able to testify in person. Um, and he recounted Deborah's problems with alcohol and how she handled the breakup of their marriage poorly, Um and under cross-examination by Deborah's counsel, he admitted that both he and Deborah continue, contributed to the problems of the marriage and that his relationship with his son had been so adversarial that, as I mentioned before, it had sometimes come to blows. Yes. 
Oh, witnesses called by the state supported Michael's and the prosecutor's earlier claims that police had been called to the home a month before the fire, that Deborah's behavior had been a cause for concern, and that Michael had turned in um, to police at the time seed packets containing castor beans. The store clerk who identified her uh, also had to testify that he'd identified her. Can you imagine just being like the guy at the register of the of the you know seed store the seed store the nursery and you're like well now i have to go testify in a fucking trial i better get paid for this shit like right i'm working for a minimum wage at a register come on i cannot afford this um so medical evidence was presented that mike's earnest Illness? Nope. Mike's illness had not fit with the parameters of any known disease, but that its presentation matched perfectly the symptoms of rice and poisoning. And an FBI criminologist provided testimony that he had tested for rice and antibodies um, in Mike's blood approximately two months after Mike's last symptoms, that he'd found antibodies there in such large amounts that he could confidently state that Mike had been subjected to repeated exposures of ricin. Okay. A police officer um, testified, so this was the police officer who responded to the um, fire, said that he found Kate to be very frantic in worry, but that Deborah had shown little, if any, emotion or concerns. Um, the defense argued that the psychiatric medicines that she had been on probably blunted the effect of her emotions. Um, which, okay. if you are on a cocktail of Prozac and Trazine, or whatever I said that one was, and Clonopin, like, that's also sensible. Um, yeah, I actually... I don't think that she didn't do it. Don't take it that way. But I'm saying this defense is actually doing a good job until they brought Tim into it. Yeah, I'm. I'm gonna say that like, I um definitely. Hold on. I'm sorry. I have been on a cocktail of medication before that made me like completely like numb, devoid of all personality. Yeah. yeah. So, um, arson investigators testified, um, about the whole accelerant, all the issues with the accelerant that I told you about through the house. Um, and then detectives who had spoken to Deborah and to Michael on the night of the fire testified about Deborah's unusual demeanor during the interview. And then a videotape of the questioning was played for the jury, um, including her statements about having urged Tim to stay in the burning house and her references to her children in the past tense. So the defense focused on this theory that Tim, who was angry at his father, had set the house on fire. Um, friends of Tim's testified that Tim had a fasc fascination with fire and that he had told friends he knew how to make bombs. Um, a neighbor testified that he'd once caught Tim burning some grass in the neighbor's yard. And you know, this was just some, some neighborhood bitch that wanted to come and like be involved. Well, I saw him setting fire to some grass, so he clearly burned shit down. A hundred percent. Uh-huh. 
A former nanny testified that she'd heard Tim speak about wanting his father dead and planning to burn the family's house down, um, and that she'd caught him multiple times setting um, with fire or with the setting fire or with the implements to set fire. Um, on cross-examination, she admitted that she'd not seen Tim for years and agreed that she'd not reported Tim's fascination with fire to his parents or the police when he'd expressed it to her. Okay. The defense rested on February 1st, and the presiding judge ruled that probable cause had been shown to hold Deborah for trial. Um, the arraignment date was set for February 8th, with her tri- trial projected to begin that summer. Blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. This is all boring. Um, so, eventually, her defense team undertook its own investigation, hoping to disprove state witnesses' testimony identifying the fire as arson. They found that accelerant had indeed been used to stoke the fire and that a robe belonging to um, Deborah had been on the floor of the master bedroom and it was burned in a manner that had been that indicated it had been worn while one of the unconnected fires was set. Remember I told you the basement had those two fires that was not connected to anything else? Right, um, okay. According to um, Deborah's divorce, divorce lawyer, when... Um, Confronted with this evidence, Deborah acknowledged to having set the fire that destroyed the home, but denied any clear memory of the event. She continued to claim that Tim had been the one who poisoned his father, and so Deborah was convinced to place an Alfred plea of no contest. Okay. So on April 13th, the defense team notified the district attorney um, that she wished to enter a plea bargain. And on April 17th, the uh, the plea was made public when she appeared in court to plead no contest to five charges, two counts of capital murder, one of arson, and two of attempted first-degree murder. In exchange for avoiding the death penalty, the no contest plea called for her to accept a prison sentence of a minimum of 40 years without the possibility of parole. She was okay. Den- she was she denied being under the influence of any drug which would affect affect her judgment in making her plea or her ability to understand proceedings in which she was participating um she read a statement in court in which she said that she understood that the state had been had had substantial evidence and that she had caused Sorry, that she understood the state had substantial evidence that she'd caused the children's deaths and that though her attorneys were prepared to provide evidence that she had not been in control of herself at the time of the children's deaths, she was choosing not to contest the state's evidence in the hope that the end of the case would allow her family, especially her surviving daughter, to begin to heal. In a subsequent press conference, the defense counsel said, quote, she is accepting responsibility for the crimes, but also, quote, I don't think she ever intended to kill her children. Okay. Um, so she like, was... Like, perhaps she just did it, like, like she had done before to try to get attention. Right. Or allegedly done before. Right. Okay. Gotcha. Um, well, so the... F- so what do you sad. mean done before? Like, the first house burning? Yeah. That was an electrical fire. It was proven to be... Okay, in the, in the movie, they 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 really they don't address it, and it makes it seem like okay, maybe 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 she didn't have something to do with it, but maybe she did. You know, right? Um, so what I think likely happened is that 
I think she was in a state of psychosis. I think it was a long-term psychosis. This is a non-psychological medical professional speaking, but it -hmm. would indicate a long state of psychosis and that what her brain said is, my life got better after the first house burned down. Ah, yeah. I I think she connected the dots that don't exist. Right. Because their, you know, their marriage got back on track after that first house burned down and they bought the bigger one. And for a few months, things were happier. And I think that maybe she thought she could recreate that. And I don't think that it was a, I don't think it was her logical brain thinking that. I think that we all have those disconnected thoughts when we were in such a deep state of depression or psychosis or anything we're going through that we make connections that don't exist. I think she just acted on it, which does not excuse it. I think it explains it again, not a medical professional at all. That's just kind of the conclusion I've come to. Um, Yeah, no, that, I mean, that would be logical. So, Oh, what? He won for Ted Lasso. Oh. Oh, what is his name? It's going to drive me crazy. It's not Jason Bateman. It's the other one. He looks like Jason Sudeikis. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) They kind of look alike and they have the same name. I can't help myself. But he won for Ted Lasso. That's so cool. I'm going to have to start watching that. I've heard like such amazing, amazing things about the show. It's really I've heard good things. They basically uh, swept the Emmys tonight, which is very interesting. So, so, um, so after her sentencing, she continued to maintain that she couldn't recall the ev- or that she had limited recall of the events of that night. Um, in the summer of 1996, she did write a letter to her daughter claiming that she'd taken more than the recommended doses of her medication that night. Um, she also sent letters like this to Michael. Um, oh so okay saying she couldn't remember what happened because she'd taken so much medicine is what she said to both of them in letters to Kate and to Michael Okay. Um, okay. she then theorized that Margaret Hacker set fire to the family's house um, and but what? then is still holding to that idea that Tim poisoned his father. So then she actually wrote the initial letter to Anne Rule in 1996. Uh-huh. Um, asserting that due to her alcohol abuse, she had not had the mental capacity to start a fire. Um, in a later sure. interview with Anne Rule, she blamed her cloudy thinking during her court hearings on the Prozac prescription and stated that once she was <coughs> off the drug, her mind became much clearer. And that's where I'm going to talk about Anne Rule's stupid ass book um awesome i'm ready let's do it i'm not going to talk a whole bunch about it but um her book is called um bitter harvest a woman's fury a mother's sacrifice so first of all let that ruminate no um, I don't like it. So Anne Rule, I'm going to say gets about 70% of this information pretty well, like pretty correct. Um, but if you read it and any excerpt I've read and any review I read and any summary I read, she is very forgiving of Michael. 
Michael is like she is simping for the abusive controlling man again. Like Oh, like she simped for Ted Bundy exactly. sat on the vibrator while she wrote that entire fucking book. <laughs> <laughs> she did. She had a thing. Her whole like the whole inspiration was for that book was I was in love with Ted Bundy. He didn't love me enough to kill me. Yes. But I just that died. was her inspiration for that book. I just died at the idea of her sitting on a vibrator to write this book like She did. Chatterbait and rule edition. Like <laughs> Listen, I don't know a lot in this world, but I do know that. Um so um anyway, yes, the Queen of Simps. <laughs> wrote regularly about how like so the book is just rife with information from michael like i said he was happy to be under a camera and under a microscope and Always. to get his story yeah. out and and rule was happy to have a smart controlling abusive man tell her i don't know this sounds so this sounds so awful toward everybody but i don't like him i don't like ann rule i don't like the way she presented him i don't like the way she presents men in her writing in general like they get a free pass for just existing they absolutely do in her books get a free pass for just existing and if you scorn one like god but then what you were just asking to get murdered right right it was like I said, I told someone earlier, like, oh, I can't wait to hear you blame someone for their own murder. And, like, that's it. That's yeah. the thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, let's see. Psychiatrist Michael H. Stone uses Rule's book as a source of information in his own writing. But, um, let's see. He identifies Green as showing characteristics of psychopathy, borderline personality disorder, and narcissistic personality disorder. Um, okay. Where's the thing that I said? Somebody had a quote about... Um, okay, so Anne Rule started this with an interview... Um, through a letter and then through like in person she recalls in her book on the case that um, her letters that Deborah's letters denied any unhappy childhood memories um, which I don't know why that was important but rule and rule was like a gotta say that she didn't have a messed up childhood so uh, so she's completely fine and we don't need to talk about mental health in America um, no of course not so yeah. then Deborah claimed that her behavior in the summer and fall of 95 had been neglectful and that she neither had the desire nor the wherewithal to set fire on the house or harm her children or her husband. Um, and then Wikipedia said Rule, who was neither a doctor nor a psychologist, but had a background in criminology and law enforcement, believed that even um, Green does not understand what caused her to attempt to murder Michael Farrar beyond the fact that she had come to hate him. Um, so Anne's theory was that in destroying sorry, that Michael, do what? Is that not enough? I'm sorry. Right. Um, I so, think Michael's a piece of shit. Right. I think that, and also think that he got the raw end of a deal because now two of his children are dead. That yes. sucks. It's terrible. Anne Rule's theory was that in destroying Michael, that Deborah would have been able to preserve her own ego, and that um, Michael would not have been able to leave her for another woman, which. Okay, I can see how we got there. 
I mean, yeah, but I mean, babe, they can leave you for another woman anytime. Right. And they will. Because men are trash. Sorry. So, um, there's another book in which this case is written about called Mothers Who Kill Their Children, Understanding the Acts of Moms from Susan Smith to the Prom Mom. Um, and they point out that Deborah was um, judged psychologically competent at what would be commonly considered the least controlled point of any mental illness from which she was suffering. She was on a cocktail of drugs which could treat the symptoms of mental illness but not the illness itself. She'd been drinking alcohol in amounts which she had been warned could interfere with her medications and she was coping with the loss of her children. Nevertheless, she spoke of her own mental competence at the time and a judgment was uh, which was echoed by the court. Um, So they speculate that Deborah could meet the diagnostic criteria for several mental illnesses, including antisocial personality disorder, but add Mm -hmm. the fact that her crimes were a combination of impulsive arson and the murder of her children and premeditated the poisoning of Michael Farrar, um, that it makes any mental illness extremely difficult to diagnose because she was both impulsive and premeditated. Okay. Um, but yes, yeah, somewhere, and I just, I guess I didn't keep the quote, but somewhere in one of the things I read, they flat out said that the biggest criticism of this book from Anne Rule is that she is um, overly critical of Deborah and underly critical of Michael. And I think that was the, the most accurate way I could put that. Um, and that this okay. Moms Who Kill book, Moms Who Kill Their Children book, has a much more... Um, disconnected and kind of clinical approach at understanding this case and all of the women they write about. Yes. So there we go. That is, uh, if I didn't say it earlier, she was sentenced to 40 years without parole. Um, and it doesn't seem that she's contested that. And we haven't heard much from her since. So that's the horribly tragic murder of Tim and Kelly. Um, Farrar. That is horrendous. I just, like, those kids. And again, this is another one where the kids get bogged down in the story of these these two fucking crazy people um, that overshadow the death of their children with their antics. Yeah. No. Yeah. Um, I just, if you, if you are not capable of not involving your children as collateral in a fight, then you are not mature enough to have kids. And I think that you need to. There it is. I think you need to assess that before you choose to have children with somebody. And I know not every child is planned and and all that but if you are this is a marriage where it it seems that they plan to have all three of this th- these children and there should have been some yes. point where they had discussed how they were going to raise their children that I don't think a conversation ever happened I'm a big proponent of premarital counseling and of really making sure that this is that this is somebody you want to cohabitate and co-parent with in a way that is often not done well, and can we just, like, take a minute and be like, 
at the very least, y'all should have sat down and, like, worked out the doctoring of it all. Right. Like, the med school, all that shit. So then when shit happened, you weren't surprised. It right. wasn't a big surprise that you have to quit your job and stay home with the kids. And it's not a big surprise that your wife is pissed because she had to quit her job and stay home with the kids. Like, it, it's just what happened. It, I I don't know. Yeah. What a mess. No, 100%. So, there's that. Um, I have nothing else positive to say. So, um... <laughs> It all sucks. That's what I've got. Yeah. What are you reading? I, so I'm in the middle of The Last Apothecary. Um, so good on audio. Oh, so and good. Then I actually welcome. have book club <laughs> at my library tomorrow night. It's the first time we've had book club in person in two years now. Um, Aww. And so we are reading The Paris Library, which is also very, very good. Um, and so that is the reason I asked if we could record tonight because I miss book club so much. I'm the youngest person Aww, by like probably 30 that. years. And so um, I love my old people and I have missed them so a lot. Sweet. That's wonderful. No, I'm so happy for you. I have to go to a sorority meeting tomorrow anyway. So um, what about you? What are you reading? I am. I just finished Rock, Paper, Scissors by Alice Feeney. Um, so good. That was my book of the month. Um, oh, yeah. It was so good. Um, I really enjoyed it. You know, I I thought I had it figured out. It's one of those, like, psychological thrillers. Uh-huh. And I thought I had it figured out. And then the thing that I knew was going to happen happened. And then there were, like, three more twists after that. And I was like, wait, what the? It was <laughs> in the last, like, five pages. I was like, what the fuck is happening in this book? It was, and I love that. I enjoy that. So I do love that. Um, my mm-hmm. book of the month, I have not started reading, but I got it also at your recommendation because you have not failed me yet. It's the, um, you screenshot it and sent it to us and said, if you have book of the month and you haven't read this, get this one. It's a memoir. Oh, oh, I oh, think. oh, 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 yes. Um, oh God. Shit. What is it called? Hold on. I'm going to look at it right now. Cause I have it. Um, and it's so fucking good. Um, also book of the month sponsor us. Beautiful country. <laughs> yes. Beautiful country. Um, I cannot say this woman's name, and so I'm I'm so sorry. It's I think it's Kian Julie Wang. It that book is it will steal your breath. It is so good. I I, uh, I think the QI sound is chi. I think that's Chan. Is it Chan? Okay. Because, okay. like, I know that, like, when we were talking about know. the Asian practice of chi, or, like, we're talking about somebody's chi, that is spelled Q-I. So I think that that Oh, no, I've always seen it spelled C-H-I. C-H-I like so. a chi straightener. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let me, like, so this, these are my notes from the book when I was, like, reading it. It's extremely difficult for a memoir to genuinely sound like a novel or even more a thriller. The books that spring to mind immediately are The Glass Castle, Educated, The Sound of Gravel. Um, Chan Julie Wang begins her story in 1994 when her family arrived at JFK, undocumented or 
hey, meaning in the dark, that is a jumping off point for her journey as a dreamer. She begins by pointing out how the Obama administration was a double-edged sword for her and, and those like her and takes us on her journey growing up in America where she didn't really exist, eventually wow. becoming a citizen in the land she'd always called home. Oh, I can't wait to read it. I found someone pronouncing this it... name for us, so here we go. Chin. 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 Okay. okay. Uh, it is moving. Like, I'm almost crying now, like, just thinking about it. it's. It's moving. It's so good. Oh, also, Debbie Allen's about to win for the hot chocolate nutcracker. I fucking can't. Um, <laughs> and, um yeah. Oh. oh, Misty Copeland. Oh, oh, oh wait, the Hot Chocolate Nutcracker is going to win something? I think it's Debbie Allen is going to win something, but they showed like a bunch of footage from the gotcha. Hot Chocolate Nutcracker, I and I just love... like, I was about to break down. We don't, <gasps> I mean, we recommend that movie all the time, or that documentary all the time, and we still don't recommend it enough. Y'all go watch it. It's no. so good. It's beautiful. It's not even a movie. It's a documentary. It's but it's like a movie it's so uh -huh, it's fascinating of things to go watch oh and that, like this must be a lifetime achievement award because it has like all our old co-stars i can't uh, oh <laughs> debbie allen's just and so her great. dance studio uh, Debra, i have did you say misty copeland was patreon misty copeland was in the footage oh um, gotcha did I, I ever tell you i saw uh, her dance no but oh, i went to new york with sarah maybe right before i met you and we mm -hmm. saw uh, Missy Copeland in, um, it's a French name, La Fille Margaret. I, I never say it right. Sarah has to say it for me. But um, it was so good. The it's girl. Like the country girl. Or, um, okay. Okay. It's, a, it's based on folk dances from around Europe. And so all the different little... Um, all the different little groups come out and do different like folky dances and then Misty was the lead. It was so good. So good. Oh, I've been meaning to do a Patreon about Debbie Allen. Now I'm going to have to. I can't. Yes. This is like a lifetime. This is like a lifetime achievement award she's getting. I'm, I'm, I can't. Oh, she deserves it. All right. She is well, incredible. I'm sorry. <laughs> we are now two hours. Welcome and to our tangent. <laughs> yep. So, um, well, everybody, thanks for hanging out with us. Yes. And um, next week we will be watching something from that list Aaron I sent you. Yes. Let's see. Um, I think probably the Farrah Fawcett movie. Yes. I'll pull up the name of that in case anybody wants to find it and watch it with us. Um, the Burning Bed. You know, we've got a house on fire and now we're going to burn a bed. So. And the other, like, the other thing I found, like, through the list you sent me is another movie, and it's a CBS original, so it's not a Lifetime, but I think we're going to branch out. It stars Brooke Shields. About, it's about a stalking case. Like, oh, yeah. it looks super good. So, yeah. Yeah, well, and that's we'll something that we've that discussed that I think we can kind of give a peek behind the curtain, is that we are kind of at the end of Lifetime True Crime, and so we are going to yeah. branch out to other made-for-TV true crime um, and true crime m movies on, like... Um, Hulu and Netflix and you know wherever we can get it if cheesy true crime is always kind of where we want to be so if you have recommendations send them our way okay also hold on um there is a movie that I've been trying to get a hold of and I cannot find it anywhere not even on Etsy like not even a, a 
pirated copy on Etsy. Um, it is it was in the movie about Diane Downs. Oh yeah, because somebody has asked us for that in our like DMs a long time ago, and it's not that we ignored that request; it's that we really have been no. trying to actively find it's that available. Small, small sacrifices. It's based on an Anne Rule book. Uh, <laughs> and it won a Peabody Award. It, I think it also stars Farrah Fawcett. That's what tr- yes. triggered my memory. If you know where I can find this to watch it, please tell me. I want to cover this so bad. I cannot stand Diane Downs, and I cannot wait to trash her for an hour and a half. She's a fucking monster. Um, I might have just found it. I will send you... Let me see if it works, and then I'll send you the link. I found it. If this is it, it's three hours long. Yep, this is it. Got it. Yeah. So I will... It's a long one, so we'll have to do it on a week where I have time to watch a three-hour-long movie, because I think they did it in two parts, like, way back in the day. That sounds accurate. Um... All right, I'm sending you this link so that you have it, so that we can say that for later. But yes, yeah. there it is. And all right, everybody, if you want to hang out with us some more, um, first and foremost, head on over to our Twitter or Facebook, and you can find our Discord link. Please join us on Discord. We have so much fun. Yes. You can find us on Instagram at Lifetime Sentence. You can find us on Twitter at Life Sentence Pod. You can find our website with show notes and merch at lifetimesentence.com. You can shoot us an email at podcast at lifetimesentence.com. Sorry, I just like panicked mm-hmm. there trying to talk. And then, oh, um, no like, I haven't been doing this for two hours. I don't know how to talk still. Um, and then, of course, hang on out. Hang out with us at Patreon at patreon.com slash lifetimesentence. Yep, hang on out with us. We're going to talk please. shit about the Palouse no matter where we are. And join our Discord. We're having a blast. We talk shit about the Palouse all the time. All the time. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, everybody, thanks for coming. And don't forget to eat your vegetables. Charge your phone. Bye. Bye.